last week, um, boy, we had a good time. The Lord was the Lord was here. It was heavy. It was awesome. We were in our message last week. It was called Tasting the Promised Land. Again, we're in the book of Joshua, walking through um, this entrance into the promised land. And what we saw in that message was the Passover had actually been completed at this point in time, okay? They had wrapped this up. There were three things that they were expected to do. The Passover was the last of the three. And in that transition, as they were getting ready to move into the promised land, what we saw was four different things in that message. We saw the location of the Israelites. We saw the timing of the Passover. We saw the provision, God, God's provision, and we saw the transition for them. First of all, the location. Now, they were in a place called Gilgal. We've talked about before what Gilgal is. This is the place where God, sort of their first encampment. This is a place where God did these three works, where they were obedient to God. This is where God really restored them and strengthened them. And what we saw was that time and time again, they're going to circle back to Gilgal. Time and time again, they're going to go out into their battles and their fights, and as they as they deal with the adversities of life, they'll come back and they'll circle back here because it's a reminder of how God was faithful to them. And we talked about the importance of you and I having a remembrance of where it is that God did restoration work in us. My wife says this church is a place for her for restoration. For me, it was the salvation, the night of salvation. August 11, 2001, man, when I fell on my knees and trusted Christ as my Savior. That's the place that I go back to when the world beats you up and you feel like, you know what? Man, I got, I, I've got nothing left. I am depleted. We've got to go someplace where we feel that reminder of God's faithfulness. And that's what Gilgal is for them. That's the place when they're beat up and they're run down. They go, you know what, circle back. Because God, remember what he did here? Remember? And we can circle back in our lives and go, I remember what God did in this place. God is faithful. I may not feel it right now, but man, you know what? I know God is there. And then we looked at the timing for the Israelites. And this was that third act of obedience. There were three things that were required of them. They fulfilled that third one. And what we saw was there was a wilderness journey. Okay? They were in this wilderness journey, and that took them for 40 years. And God said it was going to be 40 years, and guess what? To the day, it was 40 years. Because when they took the Passover, they started the whole thing, their exodus out of Egypt. That right here was on the 14th of the first month. And when this last Passover takes place on the 14th of the first month, 40 years to the day. God is a man of his word. The timing is exact for them. This understanding that God's word can be trusted. Then we looked at the provision of God. And what had God done throughout the entire time that they're in the wilderness? He gave them manna, right? That was God's provision. There's a beautiful picture of Christ in manna. We don't have time to do it today, but if you have a chance to go back and watch that message, that's awesome. But in the wilderness journey, there was this time period for this 40 years where they were dependent upon God, sustained them in the wilderness. For the whole purpose was he was trying to get them into the promised land where they would find satisfaction. That was the land flowing with milk and honey. We looked at that nutrition or that sustenance that God was going to provide. And what we looked at is the fact that God's given us the word of God as our spiritual food. And we must be dependent upon that spiritual food if we're to grow in our walk with God. As we move into our promised land, our abundant life that God intends for us to walk in fellowship with him, we must be spiritually nourished. What happens with most people is they're spiritually malnourished. They're not in the word. They're not being fed. They're not being fulfilled or strengthened or challenged. And because of that, when life comes, it just knocks them to their knees. And they feel like they're just going to be defeated. Well, that's why Gilgal is important. Because when you go back to Gilgal, guess what? Gilgal's still in the promised land. It's still got the food. You can go and get nourished spiritually. But it was all about their development, about their maturity. And as they matured and growed, they learned how to, we saw the transition. And in that transition time, what God was happening is God was provisioning them, giving them all that they needed so that they could no longer be bottle-fed the, the manna, God providing and basically putting food in their mouth every day to go, hey, look, I need you to learn how to depend upon yourselves and learn how to feed yourselves. And what it is is a picture of the word of God, which is the Bible refers to itself as milk and as meat. Milk is for babies. Like when a baby's first born, they, you, if you took a baby and you laid him in the midst of a big banquet, 
all the food you could ever want, and you lay a newborn baby in a banquet, that child will starve to death, surrounded with all the nourishment a human being could possibly need because in their area of development, they cannot consume it. So when we first get saved, guess what? We are babes in Christ, and guess what we need? We need milk. That means there needs to be someone there who does right? And they do the little thing like that. But eventually, you get off the bottle and you get a little bit of, what's this stuff called? All those, whatever. Give them some of that stuff that they eat, some baby stuff. <laughs> and they start to eat the food. Well, eventually, we get them a fork and a knife, and they, you know, and it's like, because if you're still bottle feeding your 14-year-old, there's a problem. You did, you did not train them to be mature. So our goal is that our children are going to be able to take care of themselves. That's God's spiritual growth and development for us as if we would be in the meat. And that's the transition that takes place. Not only that we can consume the word, but guess what? Then we can teach others how to consume. Because we have either physical children or we have spiritual children. There are people that are at your work right now. You may have a chance to lead someone to Christ. And guess what? As soon as they get saved, they are a spiritual baby. And guess what they need? They need nourishment. They need some guidance. They need some help. And that's why we've got to be there. We need to be mature in our walk as well. God wants us to train and teach the next generation. So what happens here, they're still in Gilgal, okay? This is where the, the Passover has taken place. They're starting to move into the interior of Canaan. This is the big moment where things are getting ready to push forward. And then this mysterious messenger shows up. This messenger shows up and uh, puts a little, little fear in people's hearts. And this message today is titled, Holy Ground. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the gift of the time that we have in the Word. Lord, I thank you so much that uh, my job is to read the Word of God. It's to study. It's to pray. Uh, Lord, and I have done my best this week with limited time, God, to, to, uh, to study, to hear from you, Lord. And I just pray. You know my heart is to get out of the way. God, I do not want the human element of this message to come out. I want to hear from you. I know that's the only reason why we're here. If it's for me, Lord, what's a waste of our time? Lord, I do pray that you'll take hold of the service, that your spirit will guide and direct. Lord, let the words that are shared today be the ones from your word, the prophecy of the word of God, that it might be shared in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as we're looking at these messages, we're in Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. It says here in this, it says, And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there stood a man over against him with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went up to him, unto him and said unto him, Art thou forest or for our adversaries? And he said, Nay, but as captain of the hosts of the Lord, I am now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place whereon thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. So we see here the Passover is complete. The transition has taken place. The dependence upon the manna is over. They've transitioned to the new land. God's trying to get them prepared. And why this is important. Why do they need to be eating of the land before they go into to battle? Because they need to understand what it is they're fighting for. They have tasted of this good land. They have eaten of this good land. And as believers, until you and I truly eat of the goodness of God, until we've experienced God's grace... God's forgiveness because we have failed. God's restoration because we've been broken. God's peace because we've dealt with calamity. God's joy because we have been broken. Until we've experienced those things, we really have not tasted of God's goodness. And what happens if we don't understand how amazing it is to have a relationship with God, guess what? We don't really fight for it. And the reason why they're able to taste the land is because, you know what? Now we know what we're fighting for. And as children of God, so many people get saved as children 
And because we never really dealt with adversity in our lives, we never really understand the value of this relationship with God. But you have somebody who's come from a crack house, who was broken and destroyed, whose life was utter ruin, and God brings them from the depths, brings them up out of a pit, out of the miry clay, and He cleans them up. It changes their life, man. Do they value that, that, that relationship? Oh, man. They will praise His holy name and thank God for that relationship. And we've got to realize the reason why they're able to taste it is so they go, man, God is good. God is good. And guess what, man? This is what we're fighting for. And understand, guys, as we're dealing with these issues in our life, what God's asking us to do is stand up for holiness. Whether it's in our culture or in our families or in our own lives, that we need to address a life of holiness. God's desire is that our life would reflect him. The problem is we look more like the world many times than we do the Lord. So here they are with a taste of the promised land on their tongues. And with that taste, man, that little bit of fire in their belly to go, you know what? Okay, we're getting ready to go. But what happens? Joshua, who's their proven leader, man, he's humble. He's obedient. He's listened to God. And this messenger, when he shows up, he's got a, a special message that we'll hear in the days to come. But we're going to look at more of kind of who he is today and kind of what he represents. So this morning, we're going to look at, first of all, his mystery. Then we're going to look at his loyalty. Then we're going to look at his majesty, and then last we'll look at his identity. We'll figure out exactly who this man is. First, his mystery. So as you consider this ominous man with the sword, let's, let's hear this verse, verse 13. It says, And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. Okay, so Joshua minding his own business, hanging out, having some snacks, looks up, whoa, what's going on there? So he, out of the blue, he sees this guy, this intimidating stranger who's holding a sword. Now, what's interesting in Scripture, when you read the Bible, if you've done it for any period of time, you'll notice that sometimes certain things just stand out. A word almost seems to jump off the page at you, and you'll be like, huh, I wonder why that's standing out to me. And when I read this, that word says, lifted up his eyes. And I was like, you know what, let me just do a little search on lifted up his eyes and see where that takes me. And there was a verse that just jumped off the page, which is in 1, Corinthians, or 1 Chronicles 21, 16. Now, I want you to listen to this, okay? 1 Chronicles 21, 16. And David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord. Now, that's an important title. Stand between the earth and the heaven, having a drawn sword in his hand, stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders of Israel, who were, who were clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces. This is 427 years after Joshua's sighting. But there are some unmistakable similarities in this moment. We see the man who looks exactly the same, who's got a sword drawn in his hand. And the result of what he sees puts these men on their faces. The exact same thing that happens to Joshua. And we look at the sword, and we've looked at in the past in our message uh, about, uh, about uh, what would I, making the cut. And we talked about the sword and what it represents. What we find is the sword in Scripture represents judgment or delivering justice in there. And this is going to be fleshed out further as we go on. But I want you to notice also the title that David gives him in this Scripture. He says, the angel of the Lord. And you'll see the relevance to that in a bit as well, sort of pointing to the identity of this man. But understand here, the results of the encounter with David was the fact that he fell on his face, he and the elders. And what we'll find is the fact that David's citing what's interesting about it is when David sees this man with a sword standing with extended over Jerusalem, this is after David has just made a big mistake. Okay? David decided, you know what we're going to do? I need to know how big my kingdom is. How many people I got, man? Boys, let's get to it. Count them up because I want to know what we got. I want to know how big my kingdom is. Right? It's not David's kingdom. Okay? It's God's kingdom. 
This is a sign, this is arrogance and pride that is driving this decision. So when David makes that choice, what happens is God brings judgment upon Jerusalem. And people are being laid waste. And David comes to God and says, oh my gosh, it's my fault, it's my fault, it's mine. And he pours his heart and he gets things right with God. And so what happens is this is just as destruction is being stayed off of Jerusalem. That's this moment that David sees this, this, this angel of the Lord. And what we find is the fact that what's interesting is the fact that that's where it's the end of disobedience. But here with Joshua, they've been nothing but obedient. So this is on the opposite end of the spectrum. With Joshua, they've done everything God's asked them to do. They've fulfilled everything that's happened. So understand, David or Joshua doesn't see this man as anything other than just a man. He doesn't see him as anything angelic or, or powerful necessarily. He just seems intimidated by this. So with caution, he goes asking what we would think, right? I mean, if you're, uh, you know, standing and you had a person standing with a sword and you're at your camp, you'd be like, dude, are you, you know, friend or foe, bud? <laughs> you cool with us, right? What's up? That's what's happening. So that's what we're going to look at his loyalty. Verse 13. And Joshua went at him and said unto him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? And check out the answer. And he said, nay. <laughs> Are you for us or against us? No. What? What? Right? And what happens is, not it interesting, I used to be in sales way back in the day, and what they have in sales is something called an alternate close. Okay? So when you go to buy a car, they don't say, okay, we're going to show you one car. Would you like to buy the car? They go, no, they're going to show you several options, Right? You, you like this one? Yeah, you really like, what do you like about it? You like the wisdom? That's the greatest It's nice. And you like two doors? Beautiful, isn't it? But what about that four door? You know your family. You need a little bit more room, don't you? I know, but it's, it's hard to choose, isn't it? So between the two, between the two door and the four door, which would you choose? They're not asking if you want to buy the car. They're giving you multiple options. So your answer is going to be, well, I guess I like the two door. Well, then let's go to the two door. Let's spend our time on that two door, right? And what happens is Joshua does that to him. He's like, are you our adversary for, for them or for us? And he goes, nay. And I'm just telling you, if you're ever in a car dealership and you want to get out, probably don't use nay. That would be weird. They'd be like, <laughs> are you okay, sir? No. You might just say no. I don't know. But, but you don't have to choose the options, what I'm saying. And what this happens with the strangers, that's what he does. He does not bite. He simply says nay. And what he's telling Joshua is, guess what? My loyalty is not to either of you, right? You're asking the wrong question. It's not a matter of my loyalty to you. The question is your loyalty to me, right? And what we'll understand as we go through this study is we'll understand this, this messenger's loyalty is to God and to God alone. It's not the fact of the question doesn't fit. It just happens to be the wrong question. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 6, what we find is they're moving to the promised land. God's talking to them about what's going to happen. God knows, obviously, there's going to be challenges during this time. There's going to be all kinds of things that are going to get in the way. And he warns them about them remaining loyal, okay? Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is way before they get there. It says this. And this is God's, he says, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Okay, this is what you must stay focused on your loyalty to me. Verses 6 through 13, what you'll see is this is where there's warnings about unfaithfulness. God says, look, if you're not faithful, you're going to be careful because guess what? Other gods are going to show up. Deuteronomy 6, 13 and 14 says this. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him and shalt swear, thy, swear by his name. Verse 14 says, ye shall not go after other gods... Of the gods of the people which are round about you. Because I know your problem with idolatry. You came from the Exodus. Your parents were idolaters. And you have learned that from them. And you're, from, you're, you're uh, predetermined or you have this, 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 this sense that that's something that you like to do. And what I need you to be careful of is not to fall prey to that. Then verses 15 through 17, he says, because if you do, there's destruction on the way. We get to verse 18. He says this in Deuteronomy 16, 6, 18. And thou shalt do that which is right and good in the sight of the Lord. If you will be loyal and you'll do what I ask of you, 
that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest go in and possess the good land which the Lord swear unto thy fathers. I'm going to give you guys some parameters, so when you get there, don't be surprised. You're going to be challenged, but I need you to remain faithful to me, faithful to what I've called you to do, because otherwise there's going to be issues. This messenger is a powerful reminder to Joshua of God's expectations. This is an up-close and personal opportunity for him to evaluate his loyalties to the Lord. And what we find is the fact that this man with the sword is meeting with Joshua, because guess what? Joshua is the representative of all the people. But what we'll see is the fact that his visit is to reinforce this aspect of loyalty. And the sword in his hand is pointing to the judgment that will come upon those who are unfaithful. Now recognize, as we will go through this study, there will be absolutely Canaanites that will not be faithful to God and they will turn their backs on God, plenty of them. But there will be Israelites as well. Israelites as well. And this sword is a reminder to say, you know what? Those who will not be loyal, those who will be unfaithful, will face judgment. Right? And what happens for those that will be faithful is God starts to return this land to their rightful owners. Guess what? He's like, dude, I'll fight for you guys. I'll fight for you. I'll empower you. I've got a loyalty to me. But guess what? It's my desire that this become the land that you possess. This is what I've given you. And what happens if you and I are going to experience victory in our promised land? We've got to realize the fact that, man, our loyalties must lie with Christ. As soldiers for the cross, we stand for the Lord. We fight the good fight for God's sake, not for our own. So many times we think it's all about us, and that's the problem. The Bible, yes, does it pertain to us? Yes, but is it for us and about us? No, it's about God. This is not about learning who you are. It's about learning who he is. And by learning who he is, you figure out who it is you're supposed to be. He's the model. This is a mirror. We look into it. And what does it do? It reveals our sin. It shows me where I'm wrong. The Bible says it's for rebuke, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness. It's supposed to teach me how to live. So as I look into it, the first two are negatives. Those are hard. You come to church, and I'm not here to beat you up, but, man, I'm here to be honest with you. And as I read the Word of God, guess what sometimes it does? I'm just like, man, oh, man i got to move on to something else because I'm going to get wore out, man. Sometimes it does. It just kicks you in the gut and you're like, dude, I suck. And I do plenty of times because guess what? I'm a person. And any of the wisdom you get from these messages, man, it ain't from me. This is from God. Anything that's good, anything that works in here is because the Spirit of God's in it. If it's mine, it's a waste of time. I'm doing my best to get out of the way. But when we go into these battles, man, we may not be fighting a physical battle, but we, I promise you, we're fighting a spiritual battle. Every single day of our lives, we fight a spiritual battle. Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 17. You're very familiar with these verses, but I want you to listen to them. Think about the fact that you're going into a spiritual battle. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Our power comes from him. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We have an enemy. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places, things we cannot see. There is a spiritual war going on around us right now that we cannot see. God is intervening on our behalf many times things we never even have to deal with because God heads them off at the pass. But guess what? Every day when our flesh is tempted, it's because we're in a spiritual fight. How do we deal with it? Wherefore? Take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. Withstand the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. Truth is the word of God. This is the foundation. When that armor, that centurion armor was put on, there was a belt that they had, a bunch of straps in the back. And when they put the armor all together, that strap, when they would take the, 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 the scribe or the guy that was helping him, he would take the armor and when he pulled like this, the whole sash would tighten up and all the armor would suddenly fit. 
Eventually, it would be loose. But that belt was the foundation of everything. He's saying, look, guess what? The truth is the foundation of everything. The belt of truth. And he says here, uh, then he says, having on the breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness. What protects our heart? A righteous life. Right? If we're in sin, guess what it does? It penetrates our heart. It poisons our heart. It deludes us. It takes us away from those things that are godly. A righteous life protects us. And so here we are. I'm going to protect my heart when I go out into this world. I'm going to face all kinds of opposition. I'm in a spiritual fight. And I leave off my breastplate of righteousness because I'm going to live in the world. Guess what? Shoom, shoom, shoom. My heart will get destroyed. And I can't tell you how many people sat in my office and bawled their eyes out because of what life has done to them. Because guess what? They went into life with no breastplate. They have not lived a righteous life. And they have been eaten alive because of it. But a righteous life protects us, man. It protects us. And your feet... Shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace, man. The walk. We walk with God. We walk in the gospel message, sharing the truth of who God is. Our life is a testimony to Christ. Above all, taking the shield of faith. This is the only variable. All the rest of the armor is locked in place. Right? Everything else is in place but the shield. Many people go to battle with their shield like this. I got some faith. But they walk in. Well, guess what? Your armor's got all kinds of voids in it. There's gaps here. There's gaps here. There's gaps here. The armor, the shield is there, so when those things come, you're ready and you're watching. You're like, oh, okay. Oh, yeah, I got you. Oh, no, no. Ah, ah, ah. Right? People leave their shield of faith by the door many times, and they go out because guess what? Their faith is bewildered, is, 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 is dead. They're not in the word of God. They're not strengthened in their faith. And because they're filled with doubt, guess what? They go out and they get eaten alive. They may even be living a righteous life, but guess what? They're still vulnerable. That shield is the variable. What does it say? Wherewith... And it says, because of the shield, above all, take the t- above all, notice that, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And can I promise you that your enemy knows where your weaknesses are? The devil, man, I'm telling you, he assigns demons to watch us. They know where our weaknesses are. And I'm telling you what, if your weakness is frustration, you know what'll be weird? Every day, there'll be little moments that just seem to fit right into your little frustration box. And you're like, Man, I just burn. And then you're like, oh, yeah, sorry, Lord. Yeah, shake that off. Right? It's, it's not by coincidence. Then he says, notice this. And take the helmet of salvation. Okay? I know I'm saved. I remember the day that I received Christ as my Savior. Not as a mental exercise, but because I gave him my heart. And what I, in my mind, I go back to my Gilgal, my place of restoration. My mind can be protected because I know who I am in Christ. I am a child of the King and the sword of the Spirit. Right? The sword of the spirit, the one offensive weapon that you have. The weapon to fight back. But guess what? It's also a defensive weapon. When someone lashes a sword at me, I use my sword to block it, man. When the devil comes at me with a lie, what do I do? The word of God. And I can slash back, man. I can strike back. I can drive back my enemy with the word of God. When the Lord was tempted, what did he do? Three times in a row. Word of God, the Word of God, the Word of God. The example is set for us a time and time again in Scripture. So as we prepare for battle, man, in our, our hearts, we set them towards holiness through this process of armoring ourselves up and taking our sword into our hand. And we consider the fact that we're getting ready to take new land. Every day, man, we're fortified to go into new territories, to meet new people, to deal with different adversities. And what happens is we've got to be reminded of our, reminding ourselves of where our loyalties lie, right? Our battles This life is not about us. The victories are not our victories. They're God's victories. When we do it God's way and we get the victory, God bless you. Right? What happens? The victory is the Lord's. 
And we realize that this life is not for us. It's God's. It's for God's glory. My victories are not mine. They're his. And ultimately, this life. And how do we come through it, man? If we're able to do it God's way, he receives glory. And that's the reason why we're alive. And I'm just telling you, man, there are people that are Christians that live lives that look like the world. And they become hardened to the truth of the word of God. And as God tries to convict and tries to convict and tries to convict, the Bible says that he chastens them who he loves, right? And he says, if you don't feel chastening, guess what? It's because you're a bastard and not a son, meaning you're not the child of God. And what happens is if you're a child of God, God's going to chasten you and chasten you and chasten you and chasten you. But there is something called quenching the spirit of God. And eventually what happens, if someone's, God's calling them and calling them and calling them and they get so used to it, you get so accustomed to doing a sin that you become hardened to the feeling of conviction that God's bringing upon your life. You know what eventually I think God does is he just goes, you know what? I'm going to take them out. They are too much of a detriment to me and to who it is that I want them to represent. Think about Ananias and Sapphira at the formation of the church. What happened to Ananias and Sapphira? God killed them dead on the spot. He dies first, and then the the wife comes in. He says, Sapphira, is that that the story you want to stick with? And he's like, are you sure? And she's like, yep, boom, falls dead. Why does it happen in the early part of the church? Because guess what? It says that all the young men are watching. All the the foundation, all the, the pillars of the church are standing here going, is God serious about holiness? Boom. Wow. We'll carry Ananias out. How about Sapphira? Boom. Yeah, God ain't joking. We need to be holy, man. We need to live lives that honor the Lord. And that's what God's trying to tell us, man. So he's trying to tell us, hey, live this life for my glory. Then we look at his majesty. But as captain of the hosts of the Lord, am I now come? And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship and said unto him, what saith my Lord unto his servant? Now, he's saying, look, this man who shows up is a representative of God. As captain of the hosts of the Lord, okay? So he's saying that he is the, the commander of the angelic forces of God. Now, based upon this announcement, what is Joshua's reaction, man? Boom. He falls on his face. He does exactly what comes naturally to those who stand or, 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 or worship God or submit to God. What we find is when those that oppose God face God, there's a completely different reaction. But when those that do submit themselves, that are, that are searching for God or that desire or love God, when they find themselves in his presence, the natural thing for them to do is exactly what David and the elders did. It says they fell upon their faces. It's exactly what Joshua did. In reverence and submission to God, in that moment, they fall on their faces time and time again. Go through Scripture and find it. Guess what you'll see Abraham doing? You'll see Moses do it. You'll see Isaiah do it. You'll see David do it. You'll see the apostles do it. And what happens is time and time again, from Genesis to Revelation, you'll find when people interact with God and they're submitted to him, they fall upon their face. But interestingly enough, when God confronts those that are opposed to him, They go a different way. They go a different way. Remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and all those temple guards show up and Judas is with them and Judas uh, comes and brings them to Jesus and this is what happens in John 18, verses 4 through 6. Pay attention, okay? Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said, Whom seek ye? They answered and said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. Judas also, which betrayed them, stood with them. That's an important point to pay attention to. Stood with them. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. So not only did the temple soldiers all fall backward, but Judas, who's standing with them also, boom, these guys just, I am he, and boom, they're on their backs. 
Same situation. They've come before the Lord. You either go forward or you go backward. If you've got evil intentions or your desire is not to love God, guess what? You're opposed to Him. You will go back. Isaiah 28, 13. But the word of the Lord was unto them. This is... Isaiah is trying to pour his heart into them. He's trying to give them the word. He says, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. I'm giving them the word of God here a little, there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Jeremiah 7, 24 says, but they hearken not, nor incline their ear, but walked in the counsel and the imagination of their evil heart and went backward and not forward. Those that submit to God, guess what? They always fall forward. Those that oppose God, guess what? They always fall back. And isn't it coincidence, I'm sure, that when people go to see these faith healers and you get the tap, which way do they fall? Always backwards. Sure, it's just a coincidence. So we see this royal messenger, right? We see that he is here with this awesome, incredible power. He's there to prepare these people to move forward. To move forward in victory in their promised land. Then verse, then number four, his identity. Is he an angel? Is he an archangel? Well, these details from each of these verses are going to kind of point us, point us out to who he actually is. First, let's look at his weapon, okay? So we know, we looked at that sword, verse 13 said this, and it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? Now, in our study, like I said, making the cut, what we saw was there's a direct correlation between the word of God and the sword. In the armor of God, we just saw that it's listed as the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, meaning that God's word could literally separate your soul and your spirit if it chose to. But notice, there's its purpose. And of the joints and marrow, it's designed to separate us from our body. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So God's word is a sword in Revelations. When God's confronting the churches in Revelation, Jesus Christ says this, And to the angel of the church of Pergamos write, These things saith he, which hath the sharp two-edged, sharp, sharp sword with two, edge, two edges. In Revelations 19, what do we find there? The Lord is confronting the world. He's bringing judgment upon the world with a sword from his mouth. The word of God is directly correlated to a sword. So certainly, this man with a sword could absolutely be Jesus. But could it be Michael or Gabriel, right? So let's see if there's some more more evidence. Next, look look at his title. And and, And he said, Nay, but as captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. Okay? So he identifies himself He says, am I now come? Interestingly enough, as if I have come before. But this time I come, it says, as captain of the host of the Lord, am I I now come? Okay, So I've been here before. I've arrived before. I've been in physical form before. But guess what? Now I'm appearing to you for this time, for this purpose, as this captain of the host of the Lord. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. But But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation. Perfect through sufferings. So he's a captain of the hosts of the Lord, it calls him. But you notice, you know what God's many times called? He's called the Lord of hosts. Right? That would be the captain of 
of the host, the Lord over the host. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. 235 times shows up in scripture. That's him. Yet more evidence. See, the receiving of worship. Okay, this is a big one. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship and said unto him, what saith my Lord unto his servant? Joshua, thinking that he's got a handle on who this is, he's like, you know what, I, I, I'm, I'm with you. Here we go. Uh, I'm going to fall on my face. I'm going to worship you, Lord. And what's important here is there's a scriptural precedence that we can go to to show to us and prove to us that this is not an angel and this is not a heavenly host. Because understand, they will never receive worship. They will not receive worship. So we see here the Apostle John. When John has been called into the future, when he's called into heaven and he's facing, he talks to an angel. And an angel, we know it's an angel. God tells us it's an angel. And that angel is sitting there telling him all these amazing things. And John's so overwhelmed by it, he's just like, he falls down in front of him and starts worshiping this angel. Listen to the response. Revelations 19.10. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, see thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant. He says, look, man, I'm created just like you are, dude. And of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus Christ, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. He says, look, I don't receive worship, dude. God gets worship. Nobody gets worship but him. And yet in our world, what do we see? We see people worshiping, worshiping statues. We see people going to a big old fancy ornate throne and a man sitting there in papal clothing with a ring that people will bow down and kiss that ring in worship of a man. Right? Now that should take us back to our Exodus day. Back in Exodus chapter number 20, verses 3 through 5. This is God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images or likewise of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. He says, I don't care what it is. You do not worship it in any way, shape, or form. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord, am a jealous. I, the, I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. He says, look, you will not worship anything but me. And those of you that do, unfortunately, what will happen is when you bring this religion and this garbage into your life and into your family, guess what? You'll poison your children. What does he say? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generation of them that, notice the wording he says here, them that hate me. Them that hate me. And we ask people that are in these wicked religions and we'd ask them, do you hate God? And you know what they would say? No, I love God. The Bible warns us that there's another Jesus there's another gospel. There's another truth. They're lies. They're, they're, they, the Bible says it's designed to deceive. So people with good hearts, good people, man, that are earnestly, honestly, every day praying and holding their rosary and calling out to God, they're just not calling out to the one true God. And what we find is the fact that God's saying, hey, you know what? If you're doing that, and you understand, when, when Jesus is talking to the Laodicean church, what does he say? He said, I wish that you were hot or cold, but you're not. You're lukewarm. You're in the middle. Well, guess what? I don't recognize that. I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. He says, you make me sick because of that. God is a God of extremes, love and hate, friend or enemy. James 4.4, 4. listen to the way he says it. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. means you're at enmity, meaning you're in opposition. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. He's black or white, man. You're either his friend or his enemy. You either love him or you hate him as far as he's concerned. So when people are worshiping people, places, or things, there is nothing there that's going on that's for the one true God. But this messenger, notice he doesn't tell them, doesn't tell them to stop. He doesn't tell them to get up. He receives his worship, revealing it's not an angel. It's not an archangel. Could it be God himself? And then the last thing, 
his command. Verse 15, And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place whereon thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, there's only one other place in the Bible where this phraseology is used, where this happens, okay? This is on Mount Horeb when Moses, right? Moses is at the burning bush. And what does he hear at Exodus 3, verses 2 through 5? And the angel of the Lord, notice the terminology, okay? So remember, that's what David saw. That's the title, angel of the Lord. What is it called here? The angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned without fire, and the bush was not consumed. That's an important point. We studied this back in our Exodus study, man, I'm telling you. That non, not being consumed is a big deal. And Moses said, I will, not, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, notice this, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here am I. And he said, draw not, not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. This passage reveals to us that God is the one speaking from that bush. In our study, when we went and did through it, we looked at the fire. We carried and we ran all the references on the fire. We looked at the, the fact that the bush was not consumed. And we proved this is a manifestation of God himself, a physical manifestation. And Jesus Christ is the physical manifestation of God. In whatever form he may appear, he is the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 2, 8 and 9 says this, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world... And not after Christ, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You see God in physical form, you are seeing the Lord Jesus Christ. An appearance of Jesus in scripture, when he shows up prior to his birth, is called a pre-incarnate Christ. That means he has appeared in a form before. And I want you to know this goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. All the way to Genesis 3. Notice what happens. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking... In the garden. Pretty sure you got to have legs to walk. Right? In the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord amongst the trees of the garden. So even back in Genesis, the Lord Jesus Christ is walking this earth. So when we consider his weapon, his title, his receiving of worship and his command, I believe that there is no other conclusion that you can possibly make. That just like Moses' first communion with God, Joshua, man, this is his first face-to-face and what happens is this with the Lord Jesus Christ, his relationship with his relationship with God, which has been sort of separated, sort of divided, sort of a voice that he's heard, a power that he's experienced in the distance, it just became personal. Right? That's a face. There's a connection. And listen, if you're a child of God, you have a personal relationship that is more intimate than Joshua could ever have. In the Old Testament, no one ever had a relationship. Though Moses met with God and as a friend, face to face, right? Met with a friend. But it's not as intimate as what we had. Because understand, we don't just have a physical meeting of the body of Christ. We get to know Christ because he's a part of us. There's a personal aspect of it because guess what? Christ is in me. The spirit of God lives within me. Romans 8.10 says this. And if Christ be in you. The body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Galatians 2.20 says this, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
There's an intimacy to our relationship that has never existed outside of the age of grace. It's never been like this. No one in the Old Testament ever had the indwelling Holy Spirit. Never, ever, ever. David had the Spirit of God, an anointing on his life. When David prayed and said, God, don't take thy Holy Spirit from me, David's not saying take the indwelling Spirit out of me. He's saying, look, the anointing you put on my life to be king, God, please don't take it off me. It came and went. It came and went. But I'm telling you what, when the Lord left and the Holy Spirit came down the day of Pentecost and compels and lives inside of believers, man, it seals us into the day of redemption. It's inside of us. It's a personal walk with God like that's never existed before. And God's reminding us of his loyalty to him. That means that our hands are to be his hands. That we're to lovingly reach out to this broken world around us as pictures of Christ. It means that our mouth is supposed to be his mouth as we speak the truth in love to people that are in desperate need of the truth. So many people deceived from religion and lies of the world. We must reach them. And it means that our feet are to be his feet. And because of that truth, we deny our flesh Right? Where my flesh wants to walk, I don't go. Where my flesh wants to be fulfilled, I don't fulfill it. Because I've surrendered my heart to God, because I know my accountability is to Him, and because I want my life to give glory to God. This thing is not about us. When we go to battle for the Lord, we're fighting for Him, for His glory, for His honor. And when we live a life that's righteous, guess what? It personifies Him. It shows the world of what it is supposed to be like. We're supposed to be a picture of Christ. Our walk should honor God, because guess what? He's within us. The reason why the Spirit of God gets, gets, gets squelched, the reason why the, burden, the, 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 the Spirit of God gets burdened and, and, and what's the word I'm looking for? Quenched. Not quenched. No, what's the other one I'm thinking for? Don't worry about it. We'll get a, in a couple, it'll be later in the car. I'll be like, oh, yeah, I know that one. Great. I'll call all you guys individually and tell you what it was. <laughs> but the whole thing is this. We hurt the Lord. Because the fact is, God lives within us. And when I experience, I take myself into places that I should not be. I listen to things that I should not listen to. I expose my things that I should not expose myself to. Guess what? The Spirit of God is exposed to it. And He reacts. That's what we feel in our hearts. When we do something we should not do. And that gut feeling just goes, oh. The Spirit of God is burdened because of our sin. So we're to surrender our hearts to Him. And walk a path of righteousness on holy ground, right? What did he say? Be ye holy, for I am holy, right? That's God's command to us. That's to the church. Question is, how are we doing? Are we holy as he is holy? That's our challenge as we prepare to move into the abundant life and they start to go into the promised land because next... This messenger is going to give them instructions about how Jericho is going to fall. That's the next thing we're going to see. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the gift of this time that you've given us, Lord. Thank you for your word. If no one else got anything out of it today, God, I know I did. Lord, I pray that you help us. Help us, Lord Jesus, to have lives, God, that will represent you in righteousness, that we might be holy, that, Lord, we might walk, talk, speak, and act, God, in a way that would give you glory and that would point this broken world to you. Thank you for what you've done today. Thank you for the work that you've done in our hearts. With our heads bowed and with our eyes closed, listen, if you're here today, and you say, look, <laughs> I have some issues in my life that I need to deal with. 
Pastor, would you just pray for me to get some things right in my life? I'm not going to call you out or do anything. I don't want you. If you say, look, you know, Pastor, I got some stuff in my life that I need to deal with. It may be little, it may be big. But what I'm going to do is ask you to raise your hand in the air and say, you know what? Lord, I got, I got some stuff I need to deal with. Put it up in the air so I can see it. I want to pray for you. Amen. I see that hand. Anybody else? So, look, I got some stuff in my life I know I need to deal with. Amen. 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 And we're going to pray for that. But if you're here today and you say, look, I don't even know where I stand with God. I don't even know if I am a born-again child of God. I've heard of what it means to be a Christian. I, I, that was me, guys. I was raised with no, no God at all. If you asked me if I was a Christian, I would have said, sure, because I believe in God. But guess what? The devil believes in God. He's not going to heaven. It's not about believing in God. It's about surrendering our hearts to him. And if there's never been a time in your life when you've truly surrendered your heart to Christ, he's calling you right now. And as he calls you, all he's asking for you to do is respond. Not with knowledge, but a surrendered heart. So their heads bowed and eyes closed. If you're here today and you say, you know what, I don't know where I stand with God, but I know I, I want him. I feel him calling my heart. You're online and you're hearing this message recorded, whatever it is. If God's dealing with your heart, I'm going to give you an opportunity to receive him. It's not a ceremony. It's not a magic prayer. This is a matter of the heart. God is calling you and all you have to do is respond. So with our heads bowed and eyes closed, if you want to receive Christ as your Savior, I'm going to lead you in prayer. The words will not save you. If you say this prayer and you think there's some kind of magic to it, save your breath. But if you want to receive Christ by faith, just simply pray by faith, trusting God. And guess what? He will do a miraculous work and save your soul. So their heads bowed and eyes closed. Repeat after me in your heart and mind. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. And I'm so sorry for my sins. Lord, I, I know that I failed myself. I failed those that love me. And Lord, I failed you. And I'm so sorry. I'm asking you right now to forgive me of my sin. Lord, I'm receiving you as my Savior by faith, trusting in your work on the cross. Lord, I'm asking you right now to give me a home in heaven through your death, burial, and resurrection. Lord, thank you for saving me. Thank you for loving me. I want to live my life for you. I pray that you help me to do just that. God, I'll see you in heaven one day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Head still.